right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Para-X Radio Network. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. This is your host, Jason M. Caldwell, with my third week in a row co-host, Zachary Louie. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing well, Jason, and it is the third week. So, we're really so, pushing it today. <laughs> <laughs> now you see, but do you have a greater appreciation about how it is for me being on the show every week? I really do. You, you you put it in on that commitment, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, first off, I want to apologize to our Para X listeners. Um, we were not able to go on with the the broad the live broadcast with Tony Merzwicky last week because there was a major April update to Windows 10 that broke Sam Broadcaster the uh, the wonderful wonderful recording software that I use for the show. You, you notice the sarcasm there. Uh, paid a lot of money for this, and it's given me a lot of problems over the past couple of years. So, it was funny. I had to go in and actually just reset settings that were already set and restart them. Go figure. But Windows up 10 updates tend to break audio devices, so there you go. Um, but throughout that apology, and... There'll be some news coming up about the future of what we're all doing. I know I kind of threw a whammy on some of you who caught the podcast last week that (laughs) things are going to drastically be changing and deeper down as you know it may be going away. But I'm going to work out final details with Andrea this coming weekend and then we're going to make our public, fully public announcement and let you guys know where it's all going to go from here. Um... But I wanted to thank everybody for supporting us and coming out and having a good time with us on a weekly basis. So, it is now officially May. And, Zach, uh, what are you working on this time around for that Do Magic challenge? Well, technically, we're in June, man. However, for our Do Magic enchantment, I'm working on money. So... I'm combining Qigong techniques, and I'm working on the prosperity side of things. So you can look at my journal on that. But if you haven't joined Do Magic yet, I definitely recommend it, because you can do 30 days of enchantment work. However your enchantments are, it could be one sigil or one enchantment a day. It could be just you planning it for the whole week and then doing a major ritual or energy work for the weekend. However, we're right into the heart of it right now. We're on day five. But you can get started anytime in June. So sign up on the new magic there. I think somebody just attempted to drive by. I'm, I'm staying low. Wow. Keep safe, Jason. Keep safe. This, this neighborhood gets more and more interesting every week, doesn't it? That is well, uh, what? So, yeah, and, and Zach, thanks for that correction. So you, you got me, folks, because of all my Windows update. Um, work this past couple days trying to figure out why my recorder wasn't working. I've somehow put myself an entire month back into the past. <laughs> Damn that time magic. I know, right? So yes, it is June. 
and it's a beautiful day here in Ohio where it actually feels like spring because every day in the actual May was like 90 something. Now we're down in the 60s. Go figure. <laughs> Whatever that American thermometer is, it definitely ain't the Canadian one, so. Oh, because if we're, if we're in the 60s, what? That'd be like really freaking like crazy hot or. That, that, that's like oh. crazy cold for us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're we're working on Fahrenheit down here south of the lake, brother. South of yeah, the lake. I always have to do that thirty degrees conversion of points. So. You know, it's 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 funny that Zach and I would have these conversion problems because literally, there's just a big freaking lake between us. <laughs> Great lakes, man. They mess up everything. Um. I think I'll do I'll do a special in the future and in, in my future uh, project about why Lake Erie is so evil and claims more lives than any other Great Lake. Just saying. Yeah, man, you definitely should do something on that. <laughs> Gotta love that North Coast. <laughs> so South but, Coast for you. <laughs> yeah. It's all perspective, bro. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're having a good time this week, folks. Sorry. That, that um, we are. So let's introduce, unless you got any other announcements, let's introduce our guest. Hey, Secret Project is still in the works, and it will be revealed sometime soon, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our guest tonight... He's been doing the work for about 40 years, people, so he, he has a lot of experience under his belt. Um, it's Stuart Alv Olson, and he's a translator and writer on Taoist philosophy, health, and internal arts. He does Chinese Buddhism and Taoism, and he has, I think, about two different companies, or at least two different websites, where he will cover the internal martial arts standard, but he also covers the esoteric metaphysics and, well, occult side of Buddhism and Taoism. So, welcome to the show, Stuart. And, um, as a side note to everyone, he has more than 30 books. So, definitely take a look at them. Hi! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So, Stuart, let's just get a bit of your background. I mean, 40 years is a long time when it comes to these type of practices. So what got you started in it? Oh, okay, now you opened up a can of worms. Um, when I was very young, I'm going to go really quickly here because it's not that interesting. Uh, but when I was very young, I, I experienced a lot of what you would call out-of-body experiences. And I didn't know what they were about. They scared me. I didn't like them, etc., and it was in my teenage years a friend of mine his older brother was one of those uh, uh, what I call the, the hippie generation college student and he introduced me to Tibetan Buddhism and in that they were talking about astral projection and then that answered a lot of my questions and I felt much better about it didn't really still like it but uh, it gave me some kind of background and then, for some odd reason, my younger brother bought me a book for my uh, birthday called uh, Taoist Health Exercises by Da Lu. And then that really piqued my interest. Even though it's a very simple book, you know, judging it today, it's too simple, but it was really, really quite d done well. But what was interesting about that is when Da Lu wrote that book, my teacher, Master Leong, had just arrived into the United States and was staying with uh, Dalu in his home in New York. So there's these kind of weird connections. And then that all kind of continued on until I was uh, uh, 29 and I came across a book by uh, Chan Master Xuan Wang from City of 10,000 Buddhas. And I stayed up all night and read the book and it was basically about the levels of Arhat. And I was arrogant enough to believe that, God, I could get the first one anyway. <laughs> and so literally within two days, I was on a bus to San Francisco and showed up at Gold Mountain Monastery and stayed there for a couple of months and then ended up going up because they had just bought it, this huge place called City of 10,000 Buddhas. 
and stayed there nine months. And then I moved back. I went on a what they call a nine-step, one-bow pilgrimage, you know, from through Minnesota into South Dakota, Nebraska. Uh, spent two and a half years doing that, uh, knocking my head on the ground. And during all of that, I made a close friendship with uh, the now deceased uh, Roshi Katagiri at the Minnesota Zen Center. And within all of that, uh, right before one of my bowing pilgrimages, I went to s- visit Master Leong. And but we came, we we shared the same kind of weird sense of humor. We got along really And so I stayed with him before I left. And then during the winters, when I couldn't be out on the roads, I stayed with him in his home in St. Cloud, Minnesota. And then when I was done bowing, I went to live with him. Uh, ending up spending like six years living with him and his family, which was really, really a blessing. Really cool guy. And all during that, I was uh, starting to learn how to translate into Chinese because uh, there were so many books I wanted to read that weren't translated and I couldn't read them. And most translations were done by academics, which really make it, you know, even though they do a good job, they're difficult to read and it's hard to extract things from it. And because of my association with Master Liang, I got to meet all sorts of teachers, uh, you know, throughout the world and did a lot of traveling. And uh, and within all of that, trying to maintain a practice and then, you know, it just kind of ended up where uh, I translated some books and we started publishing them and then I went went with other publishers for a while and but now I'm on my own I publish everything myself uh, mostly because I don't like publishers anymore and uh, so that's you know and now it's yeah I I'm not even sure but I think there's a little over 30 books that I've translated and there's like this year, there should be a, at least another six done. Oh, so wow. I keep the guy that edits for me really busy, uh, more so than he cares. <laughs> High-quality problem. And probably more busy than I want to be, because it's not my nature to be this ambitious. <laughs> so, uh, so but it kind of happens. I, I take you've become pretty fluent in Chinese, then. No, I can read it really well. I can't speak it very well. I could when I, I went to China and I lived in Indonesia for a while. If you're doing it every day, you you catch on to it. But I now I don't really have anybody to speak to, so I'm new. I can insult anybody. But what you got to keep in mind is in Chinese there's 256 dialects, meaning uh, you know the Mandarins can't talk to the Cantonese and so forth. But everybody uh-huh. is the same written language so you know I've been with Chinese people and we just pass notes between each other <laughs> so it, uh, but no I'm not I, I never claim to be very uh, you know like really uh, fluent in Chinese I can get by well, still still yeah. if, you're fl- if you're fluent in the written language enough to be able to pass notes around good job but I gotta qualify that give me one of the new modern Chinese magazines and I get re- or newspapers I get really confused I'm really where I'm good at is the older Chinese, you know, the Taoist books, the Taiji books, the Buddhist books, you know, that were written hundreds of years ago. That comes pretty easy to me. Uh, but the new stuff, because they have so many new compounds and creating so many new words, even some Chinese have trouble with it. And then they went through this awful period of coming out with what they called simplified Taiji. Uh, with the PN. <laughs> and now they're getting rid of it, thank God. Uh, China has decided they're going to go back to the traditional stuff. Because uh, Pinyin and Simplified Chinese even confused the Chinese. Oh, that it did. I could vouch for that. Yeah. It <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yeah. You know, and I'm. So, my thing is, I like reading it, and therefore, I know a lot of characters, and I don't even know how to pronounce them. But I know what they mean. <laughs> so, Just yeah. thinking, it's, it's kind of like when we, we here in the states, uh, they started trying to come up with new ways to do math to confuse the kids and, and their parents. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's like a yeah. lot of in life, you know, whether it be freeways or buildings, you know, they somebody comes in and thinks they have a great idea and all it does is screw us up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's kind of me in a nutshell to a degree. So Right. So, I mean, you know, I, I turned on the computer today, I went to your website, and you have a new book on Wen Chung, and I was like, wow, that's quite interesting, because no one talks about Wen Chung ever. Yeah. So, um, tell us what got you started in that pers- um, specific pursuit, because, again, um, that particular god does not get a lot of love. <laughs> no, he doesn't, and he deserves it. Well, see, here's the thing. Uh Wen Chong is this personality in Chinese philosophy. And he's pretty much accepted within Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. And they take his work and, you know, basically, like I say in this new book, you know, the the text is no different. It's just who's claiming to have done it. But, you know, the, the whole idea behind Wen Chong and another book that came much earlier, which his stuff is derived from is called Actions and Retributions, the Ganyingpian. And basically, you know, people take it as being something about, you know, you know, moral behavior. And what it is is that there's different venues in Chinese, and when you start talking about spiritual cultivation, you know, you've got internal alchemy, you've got meditation, you know, you've got Taiji, you've got you know, each you know, all these different uh, sections of Chinese philosophy that some people focus on and turn it into a, an actual practice. And the what stuff by Wen Chong got it left by the side. And his idea is is that, which find in earlier Buddhism and things as well, uh, the idea that if we uh, read and study and kind of absorb information through literature that we can actually go through a transformation that's equal to something that you may have done with internal alchemy or meditation uh there's any it goes back to what buddha said there's eighty four thousand dharma doors there's not one it's Mm -hmm. not just meditation that gets you there uh there's other things you can do uh to get to that point and i thought it was really valuable because in this day and age uh just learning how to the way I look at Wen Chong is he is trying basically what he's saying is be a good human being now in Taoism they have a thing called Chun Run meaning a true person in Buddhism they call it a good knowing advisor and Wen Chong is basically saying a good human being and you know many years ago I was fortunate enough to work with some people from the Hopi tribe Ocean uh, grandfather David's granddaughter and it was interesting because they were talking about their highest level in the Hopi tradition spiritually they call it to be a good human being and it's something that's kind of overlooked it's a very deep subject but the idea is is that uh, unless you know because like the Tao Te Ching says it only the Tao only accepts the good so it's kind of like learning how to be this kind of thoughtful, mindful human being is actually what's getting us to where we need to go. There's no point in, you know, you could be uh, Hitler and doing internal alchemy, but that doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere. You have to become a good human being. And so that's what what Wong is. uh, I got to throw this out there, though. If you were truly doing internal alchemy, would you still be Hitler? (laughs) Could be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he would have went there, but, you know, the idea is practices are just practices. You know, yeah. I know people that do Tai Chi that I think are terrible human beings. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, <sighs> sorry for that, guys, but it's the truth. <laughs> No, it's okay. I, I just, I, I think, I mean, I want, I really, I want both of your opinions. I was just thinking about like, okay, if internal alchemy is supposed supposed to change you, 
Well, I guess it's it's an energetic exercise, so you could be you could be a much more uh, yeah. Oh wow, you could be a much more efficient bad person, actually. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely can, and I mean, this is where you know we're going into more of philosophical conversations of ethics, or you know, inner alchemy, Buddhism, Taoism, whatever tools you use within that frame. It, it's really to the person. At that point, it's like, you know, a tool in every sense. You can use a knife to stab someone, or you can use it to cut meat. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really care. It's the old statement, the art doesn't make the man, the man makes the art. Mm -hmm. And Ah. uh, if we look at it from that perspective, is that, you know, uh, we all have the capability of being good or bad. This is what Wen Chong is getting at as well. You know, it's it comes from the old statement that you know fortunes and misfortunes have no special gate we alone invite them in so you know it's how we are you know we can decide whether to be a kind compassionate person or we can decide not to be and and keep in mind that spirituality is no license to say that you're going to be a good person a lot of people you know it's it's kind of like, and I apologize for putting it this way. Some people will be mad at me, but you know, there's this big thing about tantra, you know, and tantra, <laughs> is a, tantra is a wonderful art if people learned it and studied it the way it was meant to be. But yes. you know, like in the West, it's being used as you know, some guy decides he can teach <clears throat> tantra, and then therefore women should uh, have sex with him because it's all under a spiritual umbrella. No, it's not. It's just you know, you're just using the name to get to where you know to get what you want and it's actually then it's a bad tool so we all have this you know ability to go one way or another now fortunately I think most people that do go into any type of spiritual practice do end up better for it I think that you know there's a percentage that doesn't but the biggest percentage do and I think they find something good in it for themselves and that makes it all very worthwhile. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I think if you got to know me, you'd understand that despite what you might see in my websites, uh, you know, with Taoism especially, I'm not a terribly religious person. I, I actually have real issues with religion. I don't have many issues with spiritual things, you know, because I think everything is of our spirit. It's not, religion solves some problems, but it also can create many, many more. You know. Well, this is the thing that, you know, when we were, I was looking at from the website, I mean, you know, the books you have and things like that, it goes back to the practice mostly. You don't really care about the dogma of things. And that's actually important because I find, at least in Chinese culture, growing up in it, there's a lot of people that don't even second um, think about anything that they were told. And that. Yeah. Critical thinking is very important, especially if you're talking from a Taoist tradition, never mind a Buddhist tradition. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like Dogen Zenji, the guy, he was a famous Japanese Buddhist monk. He had a great statement. A student asked him, how can I be a Buddha? And he said, sit like a Buddha. That's all you do. Correct your posture so you look like a Buddha constantly. You'll become one. It had nothing to do with the philosophy. (laughs) Exactly. Learn to just sit like a Buddha and you'll be one. You know, so, but that's true of a lot of things. I mean, our, you know, if, for me, you know, I re- I've been Buddhist, you know, I was a real strict Buddhist for about eight, ten years. You know, but Taoism appeals to me much more because what it's doing is it's kind of washing away all these ideas of, you know, this uh, over thinking on morality and precepts and et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of basically, it's, it's basic statement is, and I read a book about this called, you know, push the boat and drift with the current. Meaning, yes, we have to take some action to lead our life in a certain way. So you hop in the boat, you push it off, and then you go with the current. Mm-hmm. When life gets like that, it gets a lot easier because what they're basically saying, stop resisting everything. Just go with, we all were born in this world with certain endowments, uh, you know, a certain kind of fate, even though that can be changed. But we are, you know, 
the way I put it to students is, you know, how do you account for a guy like Mozart, who at two years of age is performing concerts for emperors? I mean, he came with an endowment. He never had to study music. He, he just went with it. We all have those things in us. It's just that we're always resisting it. You know, it's like somebody wants to be an artist and their parents say, no, you got to be an attorney so you make money. So they go and be an attorney and then they're miserable their whole life because they never got to be an artist. Taoism would never say that to their children. You be what exactly what you have this endowment for. Uh, you know, like me, when I was young, I wanted to be a pilot. And yes, indeed, I went and got a pilot's license, but it turned out to be a really expensive hobby. And then I got into Taoism, and I realized there's the possibility I could experience flight. So I changed over, <laughs> gave up the idea of being a, you know, a pilot for TWA. So, um, yeah, it's just my thing as a kid, I wanted to fly. That was the important part. But, you know, I took it to mean that I had to go get a license. Uh, right. Now, I'm still, I'm still grounded, but I'm working on it, guys. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, and, you know, certain things do make me fly, you know, like money and beautiful women. So, <laughs> they will lift me off the ground a little bit. Uh, but then I fall down right away. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Well, uh, I, have, I have to ask you, I mean, along those lines of flight and all that... Okay, for, forgive me. I just I I'm curious, so I'm going to ask. In all these spiritual practices you picked up over the years, is there something akin to astral projection in there? Yeah, I mean it's basically all over the place. But and before I go, you are forgiven. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the thing about this is, is that. Uh, when you, when you really get into this, you know, because I experienced this astral projection, you know, it would happen to me frequently, until I went to the city of 10,000 Buddhas and I met Master Shuenwa. And during a Chan session, he came up and rubbed the top of my head and he said, you won't leave anymore. It's better to figure out this world than another one. Ah. <laughs> and honestly... I mean, I know this can sound overly mystical, but I never left my body after that. And, I, you know, in listening to those words, he was absolutely correct because I was caught between two things, you know. Uh, and to me, astral projection just created fear and anxiety. I never saw it. I saw things I didn't like. I saw things I did like, but that's a very difficult thing, you know, to deal with. Uh and I just think that, you know, I like Taoism a lot because it's very practical. Trying to, you know, basically be your own kind of natural self and not get into, you know, the kind of the more, what I would say, the more metaphysical or occult attachments that we can get into. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, St. Augustine said a wonderful thing. He said, there's no such thing as a miracle, just unknown, unknown laws to nature. And that's what Taoism is. It's constantly trying to unlock these unknown laws, that things are really not miracles. But if you know the right thing to do, well, then uh, it can look like a miracle to other people, you know. So I don't, you know, it, yes, I, I've learned things that I think uh, some people, and I've had students say, well, that's kind of miraculous. And then, no, it's not. Not to me. You know, it's like learning from Master Liang on Tai Chi. He taught me really good physics. So even guys that were bigger than me, I could knock down really easily. But it wasn't a miracle. You know, it was just learning, you know, the right thing to do, you know, and uh, it's true even in spiritual stuff. You know, it's kind of like I learned a thing with Shuan uh, Wa called the Great Compassion Mantra. And I could sit here and recount numerous stories about how in times of trouble reciting it, everything just ended up okay. And I credit it to that. But I don't see it as a miracle. 
because the way he put it was, and I like this statement, he goes, you know, it, when you're in trouble, if you if you have the knowledge to know that you can dial 911, you can get help. The mantra is kind of like the emergency number. He always said it's like a telephone number. You end up calling the right people for what you need. Uh, and I like that because it's just much more practical in you know my daily kind of dealing with this stuff. Um, well, right. And, I mean, the practices you're talking about are just grounded. Like, I would say metaphysics, high science. I mean, if I go with sci-fi on things, it's very much science. Um, magic, occult, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's just science that people don't yeah. understand at this point. So if you actually understand and have the knowledge of the background of it, well, it's just simple rules of physics where you're like, okay, I'm just going to bend down, drop my weight, and I'm going to go this direction on the projector. Yeah. Really simple stuff. However, yeah. this comes from an analytical mindset of being able to, well, test it down. Because well, yeah, it's, it's like internal alchemy. You know, there's a lot of you know, cryptic language used within it. Took me years to get through it, uh, but it's you know those those texts were written by a teacher for his disciples, and they were written in this kind of cryptic, abstruse way to hide it from other schools. Yep. Uh, but the reality of it is, if you look at internal alchemy, uh, and please bear with me here, but you know, in nature, the way things work, you know, we were. We came into this world in kind of a watery mess. You know, our parents had sex. They were sweaty, and there was secretions, and there was blood, and all this stuff. And then when we get born, you know, come out of the womb, it's another big watery mess. And so in Taoism, when they start talking about forming this elixir, they're talking about things about, you know, uh, developing your saliva, developing your secretions, you know, your sweat, your tears. All these play a part in the initial practices of building up what they call Jing energy, which is, you know, basically your body, your sexual energy, etc. And then you get up to Qi, and now you're talking about an electrical thing. And here's what's really interesting. This was just recently. The Chinese were right. Uh, the scientists discovered that in underneath our skin, there is a whole watery network that we've never, ever known of. I mean, no scientists had ever seen it before. Now they found it, and now the scientists are saying, now we know why acupuncture works. It was a whole system in our body that we never saw before. No surgeon would have ever seen it, and most microscopes would have never seen it. Yep. So internal alchemy is, is basically like building a battery in your body. I mean, your car battery works on fluid, that creates an electrical charge, and then that gets your car going. Well, internal alchemy is the same thing. We are trying to get everything back to you know when we were very young, when before we destroyed everything, uh, so that we have this vitality, this energy. You know, a lot of people think that you know there's a whole side of Taoism about you know sexual practices for enlightenment or whatever you wish to call it. But, you know, what they're really getting at is to have that energy that we had before we became really sexual. You know, uh, to put it bluntly, that energy, you know, everybody forgive me for this, but when, when we first had our first ejaculation, that was a really powerful experience. And then we lose it over time. We start having sex, we do all these things, and it starts diminishing, and we don't gain the same kind of vibration, that intensity that we had when we were really young. And Taoism is trying to bring you back to that. It's not about having sex. It's about building up the vitality that you lost. Therefore, sex becomes, you know, and it's like Buddha said, if there was any other energy in a human being as strong as sex, nobody would ever get enlightened. Nobody. Mm -hmm. And so they're using it, you know, and that's where Tantra, its original stuff was, yeah, sex is the poison, but it's also the cure. <laughs> and, you know, and it depends on which way we go with it. You know, we can, you know, there's four kinds of sex we can have. One is procreational. Most of us figure that out. And then there's recreational, which is everything from being in love and having sex all the way down to the more deviant things 
uh, insects. And then there's what where Taoism starts out, they forget the recreational and the procreational. They're, they're into what they call restorational sex, where we use it to make our bodies healthy and strong and get all the energy. And then that moves into gradually what they call transformational sex, which is more transcendental in its intent and its application. Oh, so I said a lot. Yeah. Bear, bear, with, bear with me, because I'm not as well versed in this as you. But I have a theory, and I've been bantering this theory around in my subconscious for a while, that there's, a, there's distinct energetic differences in those different types of sex mm-hmm. that do manifest themselves in the physical world. And the example that I'm going to give... Uh, am I the only one who's noticed <clears throat> when we look at pregnancies, people that are having the recreational sex so easily get into trouble with pregnancies. Yet, people that are having quote-unquote procreational sex have a much harder time sometimes actually coming to a pregnancy because they're too focused on it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. wanted to throw that out there. That there, there seems to be a distinct difference of how the odds play out sometimes. Well, well it, yeah. Go ahead, Zach. I'm sorry. No, I mean, basically, I would look at that. It's like there's a there's a desire of result, so that's already going to be a problem. Then you also got to look at what does the pregnancy actually represent? Because if you're looking at, you know, from a standpoint of love or just sex, there's two very different intents there from a pregnancy standard, and how you go about it. So, I mean, it's very much a magical act with the points of pregnancy. And, you know, as Stuart said, there's four different types, depending how you want to go about it. And depending on how people are starting off with that, yeah, that's definitely going to be a game changer. Because at least from Chinese medicine and the energetics, remember, your intention leads to chi. So Mm -hmm. from that point, things can be radically different, depending on how that goes. And that's not accounting your conscious intent. That's also your unconscious intent, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that that all leads into kind of the basic, you know, like the, uh, my teacher, you know, we talked about this many times. And, you know, he says, it's like people who want to be a millionaire. And they do all these things and they keep, they screw up because of the anxiety, the fears, you know, all these things come into play that actually push things away. You know, like the vacuum cleaner salesman who's begging people to write him a check. Nobody will. <laughs> it's like, get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, uh, you know, the other thing I keep in mind that, you know, Taoism believes that, you know, we come into this world through our spirit. So our spirit is attracted to certain people. You know, we are attracted. It's not like you see people having sex, but you're attracted to the energy and you gravitate towards that. But, you know, Taoism is basically a statement that says, work hard, work well, and wait for your allotment. And I always like that statement because it put the work and your attitude before the actual money. Most people are put the money first and try to figure out how to get it without having to work <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or have the proper attitude about it. And so you just... Oh, yeah. So you just go, you, you, you learn. If you do something really well, fortune follows it. Uh, and it, to me, it's kind of like, you know, yes, sex works. That's one thing I know. And <laughs> you know but if you're, not, if you're not concentrated on, you know, because stress itself, people that are like trying to have a baby, they go, you know, one of the first things doctors deal with is the stress of the couple. They're having all this stress, and that alone can prevent it. So, but you bring in all these unconscious things when you really want something, uh, and you haven't done what you would call this kind of mindful, almost detachment, you know, like wait for your allotment. That's kind of a detachment from saying, oh, I got to have a million dollars. It's just, no, we, we do the work, and we do it well. And within that, interestingly enough, we find what Taoists call contentment. When we're doing what we really love to do, we're content. And through that contentment, fortune follows us. It's when we're not content that fortune cannot follow. So 
But I'm, you know, there's lots of medical reasons people can't have children and blah, blah, blah. But uh, in the end, it's still a matter. Everything is mind. Uh, and if we have the correct mind, and that's getting back to Wong Chung, Chung, he's saying basically, you know, you, when your mind is right, everything else is right. Uh, but that he wasn't talking about this kind of strict morality, because that changes with every culture, you know, uh, and throughout history. You know, it used to be that uh, we were tribal and a woman would have sex with every man in the tribe. Nobody cared who the father was. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen until 14th century medieval times. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden we had marriage licenses and all of a sudden we cared who the father was. And, you know, uh, but before that, nobody cared. The child was a child of the tribe. Therefore, pregnancy was never an issue. You know, that's a new issue in our kind of human culture. Uh, well, it's it's funny when it comes down to heirs and property rights. All of a sudden, that mindset changes, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, keep in mind, you know, I'll, I'll tell this story, but you know, again, I got to apologize to your listeners, but you know, no the, very, the, the very fact of marriage came about during the Crusades when the men would leave, so they created this document that, and actually, the name of the document in 14th century was. Uh, forbidden unlawful carnal knowledge, meaning if you had sex with a woman behind this door, you it's forbidden and you can be all your property can be taken away, etc., etc. But the name of the the legal document, which was based on the same document that we use, they use for ownership of cows, uh, but. The name of it, forbidden. Just unlawful. remember, don't actually say the word associated with forbidden yeah. unlawful carnal knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a mouthful. It would never. Yeah. So you know, nowadays, you know, when you get really mad at somebody, you can say, "Forbidden unlawful carnal knowledge to you." <laughs> yeah. I just, I just want to make sure we, we were staying safe yeah. for the radio there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we. Culturally, what I'm trying to get at here is that culturally we've all decided, you know, different eras of time and different countries all decide which, which what is morality, and nobody really knows it. You know, you can talk to the different, you know, popular religions nowadays, and they all have a different sense of it. Taoism basically said, forget that and just be a good person. That's it. You know, you don't have to think about you know, whether I should do this or not do that. Uh, in fact, sometimes when you tell yourself not to do something, you're going to do it. Yep. You know, uh, it's you know, it's like telling people, do not think of an orange horse. That's all they'll think about. <laughs> well, right. And, I mean, I even go further saying, like, you know, good person is relative to, well, who you are, who the culture is, what the paradigm you're working in. Because yeah. if we look at a good person, the Taoist good person is basically an anarchist and the natural flow. If you say Confucian, it's going to be different rules at that point. Yeah. And the good thing about Wen Chung is, as at least a deity figure or archetype, he fits into all three paradigms in Chinese culture, be it Buddhism, Taoism, yeah. Confucianism, and yeah. he really doesn't care how you do it. It's just, does yeah. this make your life better? And that's yeah. actually the point that I find a lot of people get morally stuck up on things, and mm-hmm. you just got to look at it ethically and be like, is this actually making your life better, whatever that means? Because if we're talking about that destiny point that you mentioned, whatever that means relatively without the moral connotation, everyone's got a different path. Yeah, so. yeah, and it's like nowadays we're suffering. People don't see it as this, but I do. This whole thing of political and you know correctness that is going on mm-hmm. is it's basically very harmful because what yes. it's doing is making sure that we can't laugh at anything. And I find that <clears throat> laughter is the greatest healer of them all. You yeah. know, like children. They say smile and laugh about 360 times a day. When you're in your 50s, it gets down to about three or four. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. Well, think about it. Oh, I mean, people. No, find, it's, it's true. It's, it's, I get it. Yeah. And we and Taoism is say imitate the child. 
you know, so like Master Leong, one of the pleasures of living with him and one of the detriments was is that he lived to make me laugh every day. And he would, I know it doesn't sound very Taoist, but he would do, he would go to great ends uh, to make sure that we had a really good laugh. Uh, mostly for him, not for me, but, you know, he, <laughs> well, I'll just quickly tell you a story. One day he comes downstairs, tells me he has to go to the bank and get some money for his wife, and he wanted me to drive him, so I drive him to the bank. We get to the bank. And then he says, no, you must stand. I'm writing a big check. So stand next to me at the counter so nobody robs me. And he writes the check. The girl hands him the money. He turns. He puts it, hands it out to me into my hand. I'm holding it. He takes three steps back, points at me, and said, arrest this man. He's trying to rob me. (laughs) (laughs) And the bank guard is taking out his gun. Now, fortunately, one of the women who is you know, one of the vice presidents, she was a student, and she started laughing because she knew us. But in the meantime, it's like he just thought that was, you know, the funniest thing he could have ever done. And the whole way home driving, he was just laughing really, really heartily. And it was, but this is what he would do. Every day he'd try to come up with something, a practical joke to keep everything light and funny because he said, otherwise you're not going to live very long. He goes, serious people do not live. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I see his point, you know, but it was usually at my expense. But that's okay because I got so much from him that uh, it didn't matter. But, you know, we had that kind of relationship where we could, you know, we were really intimate friends in that case. And uh, so, you know, I could tell you other stuff that's even far worse, but I won't. Uh, so... <laughs> Actually, I wrote a book called Steal My Art. It's a book on the life and times of Tai Chi. It's a Tai Chi, but it's unlike any other Tai Chi book you would read. Because the, the last third of the book is just these stories. You know, of things he did that were just hilarious. He was pretty creative, actually. So, uh, yeah, th- this is what I find really interesting is that, you know, I've been, ar- I've been around a long time. I've you know, met lots of people. I've been very fortunate to have really good teachers. Why I got them, I don't know, but that's where I ended up. And they all had an incredible sense of humor, more so than their students. <laughs> well, I mean, you look at the traditions of, like, at least, you know, Chen Buddhism, which is from China, Taoism, all these things, it's kind of like, if you're going to be so serious about it, I mean, I hate pulling the joke around, it's like, why so serious? Yeah. But it is a comedy. It's a divine comedy. And if it's very much along the lines of, you can kind of make whatever theater play you want, at yeah. least make it a funny one, because at least I like comedies. Yeah. When I watch them. So why wouldn't you make your life that way? <laughs> yeah, Master Leon once put it to me, and, I, and we'll go back to sex here just a little bit. He reminded me of a Buddhist precept one time. And uh, uh, he said, you know, because there was this really cute girl that came to class and she liked me. So he brings this up and he goes, and I was feeling, you know, like, you know, because he was teasing me about you're going to try to connect with her, blah blah blah, and I'm, I'm trying to assure him that I wasn't going to, uh, which I did, but that's beside the point. Uh, <laughs> the point, the point he was making to me, he said, when you became a Buddhist, you took a vow not to commit sexual misconduct, and I go, yes, I did, and he said, do you know what that means? And I said, yeah, I shouldn't do you know bad sex stuff, and he goes, he goes, no, you got to be more articulate. He said, but Buddha was never against sex, ever. What he didn't want is for us to do sex that created bad karma, meaning you don't rape, you don't molest, you don't harass, you know, you, sex has to be very consensual and it has to be a good thing. And then when you do that, you're creating good karma. Anything other than that, you're creating bad karma. So he said, take that advice and then, you know, whatever you do, you do. Just make sure it is creating good karma, that you're not hurting people by this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's part of one Chang, too. You know, it's like learning how to, not to do things, you know, out of our own greed or our own ag- anger or our own ignorance, 
not to hurt people through our actions and our decisions. That we really need to, you know, look that, you know, as Taoism says, you know, it's everybody is one and the same. We're all part of a whole. So you hurt one part, you're hurting it all. And, you know, that's like when you see in the world, you know, when you have a lot of turmoil going on in the world, you not only see wars, you see all sorts of natural disasters. Um, because that energy is not just in you, it, it gets spread out throughout the world. And so when we learn to be kind, when we learn not to go out of our way to harm people, uh, everything in the world gets better. You know, it's, it's, uh, there was a thing, when I was on my bowing pilgrimage, they brought me back one day to the Minnesota Zen Center because they were doing a, uh, a peace meditation along this lake that was very populated kind of for sunbathers, etc. And the thing was, is a lot of the students wanted to do this protest against Honeywell because they had, they were making bombs or something, parts for bombs. And Kataguri very wisely said, no, you shouldn't do that because there's a lot of people that work at Honeywell that rely on that job to feed their families and to pay their memberships at the Zen Center. (laughs) So Uh he said, said, what you do, he said, is just sit. So it was like there were like 80 of us sitting along this beach area and there was a sign out in front saying, we are meditating for peace, join us. That's all it was. And to me, that was incredibly wise because we ended up with probably 300 people sitting in the grass just quietly. And that brought more peace than us taking signs down to Honeywell and screaming and yelling and creating contention, which is another thing, Taoism, you know, that's one of Lao Tzu's biggest things, do not be contentious, don't create it, you know, because all it does is create wars. And there's much wiser ways to get around, you know, these things that we want to create contention with. So I find Taoism really, really valuable. And this whole thing, because you you talked about when we first started here, Wen Chong, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think he was more Taoist than he was anything else. Because he really, when you look at his work, it was about not creating contention in Mm -hmm. our uh, learning how to just drift with the current and let things be. You, know, you can't you can't go through life trying to change everybody. All that, all that does is create wars. You know, it's like people that get married. One of the problems with marriage is somebody wants to be in control, and people want you know in this kind of marriage, they want the uh, the partner to do what they want to do. And then when they don't, then that ends up in divorce because a lot of marriages end up in a lot of contention, uh, you know, mm-hmm. fighting over money, sex, all sorts of things. Uh, and it's because, you know, they, they made a clear decision that they were going to control things and they were going to force their way to that. You know, you, I hear, you know, I get lots of people that come to me and say, you know, couples that come and say, well, we're fighting about this. And I go, why? You're both just human beings and you're both, you know, you just have to learn to accept what the other person is. And you either accept it or you don't. But accepting sure makes life a lot easier. You know, and it's it's kind of like I, I got that also from when I was bowing. There was another Japanese monk over in Japan doing a bowing pilgrimage too. And Geo Magazine had done an article on him. And these people brought it to me and I was reading it. And there was a really great statement because I really related to it. Because when you do this, you're always stinky and dirty because you're outside bowing down these dirty roads. And the, a person came to the Zen monk and said, why are you doing this? And the Zen monk said, because I'm grateful. And the person looked at him and like, you know, seeing his disarray and his filthiness about him he goes grateful for what and the monk said well actually I'm you know I'm not grateful for anything but it's really a wonderful state of mind (laughs) (laughs) 
That's and, as uh, as you can get with things. Yeah, but that's you know that's yeah, it's Taoism too. You know, it's just kind of like you have your choice. You can either decide to smile or you can frown. Uh, you know, and you know, it, we we make the world better when we smile. And you know, it's that's what Wen Chong is. You know, when you really get look at his stuff, he's. Yeah, let's make the world a little better place by not being, you know, because even morality can become a point of contention. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, like when I was little, I had a friend who was Catholic, and I was brought up Lutheran, and I spent most of my time with him, tricking him into thinking it wasn't Friday, so we could go have a hamburger. <laughs> uh. I succeeded many times just hated me for it you know but to me as a young kid i'm going what difference will it make if you don't have a hamburger on friday you know uh i didn't see the logic in it and gradually as he got older he didn't either but you know but these kind of moral issues that we these extraneous peripheral things can create problems um and you know i just that's why i look at religion is if you're fighting for your religion then it's really not worthwhile to begin with you know you know there's one of the stories about Taoism where this one monk priest was running a temple and the people that visited were surprised that all his friends were like a Jewish monk a Catholic monk you know he had all these other people around him and they were just really enjoying each other and they asked this Taoist monk well have you ever tried to get them into Taoism and he looked at them with the strangest face, and he goes, "They already are. They're my friend." <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, it doesn't so, matter what all that other stuff is, you know. Mm-hmm. So. You guys taught me some really cool concepts tonight, based on when when Chong. Why does he not get the love? Well, there's a lot of different views. I mean, first, he's a literature god or a deity, so he's going to generally be revered in terms of Confucian traditions. I mean, Taoism gives him his kudos, too. However, I would say literature and critical thinking is not something that most people like, unfortunately. And that's what he does embody in many ways. It's education. The critical type of education of reflecting on yourself and saying, well, I can read these books and their scriptures, and none of this matters, because I can absorb the information, but what do I do with it? See, that actually says you need to take responsibility for things and not just do point devotion. So it makes you the kind of thinker that's not really emotional and getting offended over every little thing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. No wonder people don't like him. (laughs) It's been a human condition to always want a magic pill or a magic word. You know, and they don't exist. Uh, it's really you, and that is tough for people to, you know, because they all go to things and go, you know, like I, I just get sickened when I read these, I see these ads, but, you know, come to my workshop and I'll make sure, you know, you all, we'll open up all eight meridians on the weekend. I'm kind of <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> That's a lifetime of work, you know? Mm-hmm. So, would you, we final minute, would you like to tell the audience about any public events that you're doing? I don't do them. <laughs> well, fair enough. No, I just have, when people, I, I travel, I just got back from Fort Lauderdale, some people, you know, small group of people wanted me to come and talk to them, and I did it. I gave up on the idea of seminars and workshops as such, simply because they're just, uh, I, I always kind of feel guilty about what people walk away with after having well, spent hey. money. And I want to thank you for for coming and spending your your time your free time with us because I know you've been very busy. It's my pleasure. We like- have to take it on out, and I would like to tell everyone: everyone have fun tonight. Everybody win Chong tonight. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And tell everybody to go buy a million copies of my books so I can quit writing. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everyone.